Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hey, and welcome back to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. You know, we've been counting down towards April 1st for the last 10 weeks because April 1st marks six years that I've been working as a solopreneur and we're there. We're, this is our last episode before my big six year anniversary of working for myself show, which will be the next show that we release. And I have been starting each show with a little tip on my 20 tips for solopreneurs. And so today we have worked our way up to number 20. And tip number 20 is that you need to review and retool your plans and your strategies constantly. I mean, I try to look at my, my, my annual goals and my plan every single month just to make sure that I'm still have my ladder against the right wall. Because sometimes you work really hard on a project and things change in your business or you discover things. And since it's just you when you're a solopreneur, one of the biggest problems is, is that you can keep climbing that ladder against the wrong wall for a long time before you ever realize that, oh my gosh, I'm near the top and this isn't what I should be doing. So my advice is at least quarterly, if not monthly, take a a real close look at your goals, your plans, your strategies, the actions that you're taking on a regular basis, and make sure that the things you're doing still line up for what it is you're trying to accomplish today. And speaking of today, we have a great show in store for you. My guest today is Ryan Williams. Now, I met Ryan via John Corcoran, who was a guest on the show, oh, about eight weeks ago, and he introduced us, and Ryan and I had a really long phone conversation, and I knew at the end of the the chat that we had that I had to have him on, Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, because Ryan's been doing a lot of cool things. He started off, he he went to Vanderbilt University, he worked in the film industry, he was in, in TV industry, he was actually a PA on The Wire. Uh, he did stand-up comedy for a while, which I always think is cool. I have this little secret desire maybe to go do some stand-up someday, although I don't know if I'm really funny enough, but it would be kind of cool to give it a try. And then he's worked for several startups in Los Angeles, including one that was in the gaming industry and another one that got sold to Disney. So he has had a lot of eclectic stuff that he's been doing, and he now is a solopreneur. He's doing his own thing. He has a consulting company called Influencer Media, and he's writing a book and just doing a lot of stuff. And so, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. How's it going? It's going well. So, Ryan, you know, I just touched on all the things you've done. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey and then what you're doing today that's so fascinating? Uh, yeah, well, I've, my journey has been a long time coming, and I feel like what I'm doing now is a culmination of all these different skills that I've acquired through the years. And uh, when I graduated from Vanderbilt, I did a very unorthodox Vanderbilt thing to do as I started uh, becoming a stand-up comedian. And so I, probably, I performed around 100 shows. And I was back on the East Coast when I was living in Washington, D.C. And D.C. is not a very funny city. People <laughs> take themselves way too seriously, wearing you know, gray suits all day. So it was a very great, uh, nice and safe venue to start in because people were, were ready for laughs. So, uh, so I have to stop you really quick. So how thrilled were your parents? Because I have a kid getting ready to leave for college, so we're paying a lot of attention to things like tuition. And so how thrilled were your parents when you said, oh, by the way, uh, thanks for this great education at Vanderbilt. I'm going to go do stand-up. Well, I, it, it, actually, I drove uh, back home from college, and I worked at a law firm in D.C., uh, in Georgetown, actually. And so I'd done that, and I realized it wasn't for me. And my parents, they were supportive. It was one of these moments where I'm a strong believer in that sometimes you need to reboot your career. 
And to your point about the advice you just gave, where if you're climbing up a ladder and you realize maybe you're at the top, but you're not where you want to go. Like I felt like I was going to be on a track to go to law school that wasn't right for me. And so maybe I took a, a bit of a drastic turn to stand up. But for me, it helped me reboot my career and think about what my priorities actually were. So then I went to, into the film industry. From a, I worked at a nonprofit in D.C. I, you know, like John Corcoran, who introduced us, we've had a lot of different types of jobs. But I think that in the end, you know, film was something I loved to do. I worked on The Wire uh, as a PA in Baltimore. I did a lot of independent film. I made shorts. And then, but what I realized was I was really good at marketing. And I was much better at marketing my films to audiences in D.C., I played comedy festivals in Washington, D.C. I you know, got on stage at the D.C. Improv. and I, I, You talked to my, my now wife, then girlfriend, and she advised me to no longer perform stand-up. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, she just didn't find you funny all the time? She did not find me funny all the time. And surprisingly, she's still married to me, but she, she helped me you know, realize that marketing was my passion. And so when I moved out to L.A., I dropped the mic, gave up the stand-up comedy, pursuits. And then I worked in film a little bit out here and I realized that the, the business models were changing. And this is six, seven years ago where the content was being consumed more online through piracy at that time. And so after working on Ugly Betty and realized they turned down a funnier die sketch with one of their characters, I realized I needed to go back into the marketing world and startups were where my passion was. And I love launching ideas to the world. So I joined this company, Digison, that was acquired by Disney. And then I went to Machinima.com, which is a gaming content uh, engine for YouTube. It's like an ESPN, CNN for video gamers, people that play Minecraft and Call of Duty. And then I went to a startup called State.com that was based out of London and you know ran our marketing efforts from Los Angeles. And I, like you, I'm, I just celebrated my year-long anniversary. I, I haven't been doing it in, for six years as a, as a solopreneur. But now I, I believe that in this era, if you're building a media-based company, you have to put your money where your mouth is and you have to actually create. And so for me, I'm publishing a book, I do my podcast, and then I work with companies and brands to help them build podcasts. So what led you to want to take that leap a year ago to go to work for yourself? Because, I mean, you're still a young guy, you have a new baby, you're married, you live in Los Angeles, it's not a cheap place to live. What made you say, yeah, I'm going to go do this? Ultimately, it was burnout, and it was working for other companies and their founders and actually not having my own ideas to execute. And for anyone that's worked at a startup, you know that there's they're small organizations. You do five, six, seven different jobs. There's nothing better as, a, as an entrepreneur to learn from people that are actually building their own companies. But I reached a point where you know, seven years into working for other people's successful companies, I had to take the leap. And having my baby daughter coincide with, with it was, was somewhat random, but also you know, a sign. It was a precursor that I had to be able to talk to her in 20 years and say that I took a jump and I took a risk because I wanted to do things the right way that I thought I could succeed on my own versus keep working for other people and their ideas. So what is it that you love now that you've been doing this for a year? What do you wake up every day and say, yeah, I love this. What is it about the life of an entrepreneur that you like? I love launching ideas to the world for other people. And then with my own ideas, it's that much harder and it's that much more of a challenge and it's all on me. So I've come to this point where if I don't get the work done, it doesn't happen. And I like to sink or swim on my own accord rather than be reliant on someone else to give me deal flow. And for the, the podcast, the book, the consulting business, if it's not getting done, it's my fault. And I have no one else that 
I have expectations for. And so I love the fact that it's, it's all on me. And so when I succeed, I get the accolades. When I fail, I feel the lows. And as you know, there's a lot of highs and lows to this kind of business. But I love the fact that it's all on me. I don't have to rely on anyone else. Yeah, and I can relate to that because, you know, I found over the time that I've been doing it, there, there are times where I look back and say, I could have accomplished so much more with this project. And there's not like I can point to an assistant or a partner or anybody else and say, they, they didn't do everything they could. At the end of the day, I'm the one who probably could have done a little bit more to make a certain project or a marketing uh, campaign or something like that succeed better. And the flip side is, is that when it does succeed, you're right. There is a lot of pride where you can say, hey, I did that. And even little things like billing people. I had a client that I didn't bill enough. And it was my fault because I didn't understand what I was doing. It was back when I first started my company. Whereas if I had at least a co-founder, I would understand that you know billing was important and I should understand my value that I'm actually giving people for my business. So when you say billing, do you mean the actual price you charged or remembering to actually send the invoice? No, no, no I, I charged them, but <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I invoiced them, but I didn't give, I didn't get the, the right amount. It wasn't, I, I undervalued what my services were. And I think actually both of those are common things that entrepreneurs do. I think a lot of us undervalue our services and it's finding that sweet spot where you can still get a lot of work and yet, you know, you're getting the maximum value. It's a hard thing to figure out, especially when you're with by yourself. I mean, if you have a co-founder or somebody, you know, even if they don't have the experience in setting price, at least you guys can banter back and forth and, and toss ideas around and say, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? You know, I find myself talking to myself in the car sometimes times about, about things like that. But I actually consult with a lot of people when I do coaching. And one of the things I find that people do is sometimes they aren't really prompt on sending invoices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then all of a sudden they have the problem that they need the money and it's, you know, they haven't sent the invoice and you send an invoice three months late and it's not going to get paid in a day. You know, you, you, you mess up their books, they'll mess up yours. And so I found that a lot of people actually have that problem too, is they forget to send their invoices. And that's, I don't have that problem because uh, I'm very much of, I like to get paid. No, I like to get paid too. The, I, I agree about the being prompt with your invoices is important. And also, People sometimes are hesitant to bug the person that they're invoicing or bug the company. And there's no shame in actually saying, hey, I gave you 10 days. Where's my invoice? <laughs> and I feel like you, it's money. People aren't always willing to give it up as easily as you'd like because you don't know their circumstances. But people should never be afraid to actually bug people that they're not getting paid. Nope, that, that's true. So, Ryan, let's switch it around. So we talked about what you like about being a solo opener and working for yourself. Are there parts you don't like? Are there days you ever wake up and think, wait a minute, I, I could still be doing marketing for a startup. Yeah, it's lonely, 100%. You know, I think you know, it's been said many times that being entrepreneur is, is the loneliest job because no one understands the highs, no one understands the lows. And for me, you know, getting up in the morning is great, but I, I don't have a team. And so I have to utilize other people. I know, you, I know you're you know, very well versed in the mastermind group space, but I, I tend to take my work on the road a lot and talk to friends and confidants. And my wife is maybe annoyed because she hears about my business too much, but I like to workshop my ideas with people that I trust. And I feel like this is something that's, it's all on me. And so I get buried and, you know, I'm in an echo chamber at times. And that's one thing I don't like. And so I've tried to work at co-working spaces in Los Angeles, but I, I found those didn't work for me. I had a lot of people always pitching me bad ideas and <laughs> <laughs> like asking me about what they thought, what my thoughts were for the cat 
uh, website for for social networking that they were building. <laughs> like no joke, someone asked me if what they thought about a Castagram uh, mobile app for for cats. Hey, that pi- that picture got three meows. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a downvote is a flea, but you can't really. <laughs> So you can't put a, 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 I mean, being a part of a team and, you know, all on the same payroll is, there's something about that, the camaraderie that I miss. And uh, so being a solopreneur is, it, it can be a bit isolating at times. So I try to get out as much as I can and, and, and go to lunches and get to meet, get, go to meetings with trusted confidants where I can actually get feedback on what I'm doing. And I think that whether you're a startup entrepreneur or you're a solopreneur or whatever, I think that networking becomes so much more important. You know, everybody talks a lot about in companies, they think about networking if you need to find a new job or if you have sales that you have to make. But really, if you're working by yourself or with a very small team, I find that it's really important to be out there participating in something. And and you brought up mastermind groups. So I'm part of a very great mastermind group. I'm very fortunate. I've been a part of a couple of others. Uh, One that was great, a couple others that didn't ever pan out. The people weren't as committed. We just didn't gel as well. But, you know, my mastermind group, everybody lives all over the country. Two are in California, one is in Milwaukee, one's in Denver. And once a month, we have a two-hour Google Hangout call where we all kind of get face-to-face by video. And we talk about our ideas and our ups and our downs and what our sales are like and, you know, what we're thinking of doing for marketing. And in a way, it's like having coworkers, even though each of us have separate businesses and separate P&Ls, you know, we don't, we don't share the money, but we do share the highs and the lows. Like I, I recently landed uh, the opportunity to be the master of ceremonies for a very large uh, conference coming up this year. And the first thing I did, you know, after I told my wife was I told the people in my mastermind group and they were thrilled for me because it was a big honor to get to be the master of ceremonies at this event. And they knew I'd been working towards kind of bigger events like this. And, and it was a perfect fit and they all knew it, but it was nice. It was just like telling, you know, if I worked for a company and I went in and told the team, we just landed a new client, the whole team would be happy. That's the same response I got from my mastermind group. So you have to have people, whether it's a formal group or just friends or, or just people you encounter. Otherwise you're right. It does get very lonely. What's that? You actually, Remind me of a conversation I had where one of the listeners from my show interviewed me on his podcast, and he asked me if I had to find new friends now that I've taken the risk to go on my own, because he felt like living in West Virginia, where he was based, he didn't have a lot of people he could relate to. And I think there's something to be said. I, I told him you don't have to find new friends, but you need to find new, new colleagues and new friends. In some, some respects, that means that you have to seek out people that are more like you, because if you don't and you're... You can't relate to your friends that work in real estate or that, you know, are in medicine or people that have their own non-technical based companies. Like, I think that there's a lot of people out there that you talk to about what we're doing, like friends of mine from college, for example, that are on traditional paths and they want to believe what I do and they want to get what I do. But in the end, they, <laughs> they are only driven by the bottom line. And I think that's important. Obviously, you've got to pay your bills and make money and, and save up. But there's so much more, I think, the work we do that is valuable to us that isn't just the paycheck. Well, you bring up a you bring up a great point because it doesn't mean you have to fire your other friends. I mean, it is true that, you know, people who are, you know, friends in different industries, you know, can be great people to hang out with and snap, but somebody who works for a large company and has a traditional paycheck doesn't necessarily understand what it is to not get paid for 2 months because you didn't have any new sales 
or because a client is holding back on an invoice because they're having internal problems inside their company. And when you work for yourself, that affects how you pay your mortgage. When you work for another company, usually your paycheck is going to come either way. And I do think that the the things that you know uh, we encounter when you when you work as a consultant or a, a speaker or a writer or whatever are a little bit different, and it is important. That's why I'm a real big believer in being active in your trade association, whatever industry you're in, especially if you're a solo or small entrepreneur, because you get to get around other people who have the same challenges. And people always tell me, well, I, I don't want to join you know, my trade association because it's just a bunch of competitors. Yeah, but it's also like your best source of peers who feel your pain for the type of stuff that you're going through. And so I think you bring up a really good point about finding you know, additional friends. I'm always cautious when I say find new friends. People think I mean you have to fire your old friends, and that's not right. at all what I'm saying. But you know, bring new people into your life because it is true. Like You're like I am. I want to talk about business. I want to talk about ideas. And some of my friends don't, and that's fine. We talk about other stuff. We talk about our kids. We talk about our hobbies. We talk about you know whatever we talk about. But I like having people in my life who want to chat about business because that is my hobby. My business is my hobby, and I'm proud of that. I like that. That's what I think is a, a, a differentiator between people like us and other folks that have their 9 to 5 or 9 to 7 job is that on the weekends, we're thinking about our job. doesn't mean we're actually doing it, but we're thinking about it because it's our passion. It's also our business, but the hobby part is, is so important because, as we know, podcasting doesn't really pay the bills. Oh, sp- oh, speak for yourself. I'm making millions off this thing. Come on. So you're, you're, you and Mark Marin and <laughs> Nerdist are making millions. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm not making any money off my podcast. But, but the truth is, is that I've had people who I've met through this podcast, both people who are other podcasters and people who have listened, who've reached out to me, who have referred me to be a speaker or a master of ceremony. So there's fringe benefits to my podcast absolutely. for my business. But I don't, I don't sell advertising, so I don't have direct, you know, you know, uh, income from that. And the ROI is in relationships and longer term business development versus there's not a quick buck you can necessarily make off a podcast. And if you do, I, I mean, I have made money off my podcast. I've sold ads before, but it wasn't the money that was, you know, going to change my mortgage right. payments. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm, I'm actually ready to find the right sponsor for this show because I've got a steady audience and it's growing and you know, I'm, I'm looking for the right sponsor, but I'm not like running out there saying anybody give me, you know, X number of dollars a month because I want to make sure that whoever does it is actually a partner who wants to be involved in helping to grow the show. And to be honest with you, that's really hard to find. So I'm not worried about the money side of it. Well, that, and that's one of the reasons why I started my consulting business for influencer media was because I think in the end, CPMs for podcasts, so cost per thousand listens, isn't, the ad model isn't necessarily sustainable in the long run because it's really hard to make money as a podcaster when, when your advertiser is paying for a thousand listens because your audience could only be 10,000 people, but those people are the right audience Correct. for the brand. That's right. And you don't need to get a million listeners like Mark Marin or, or Nerdist to actually monetize. And so I think we're still so early in the, in the podcast monetization right now. It's all about community and audience. So I have a question for you. Let's say there's someone out there who's like you. They, you know, in their 30s, they're working for a company. They feel that ladder's against the wrong wall. They listen to you and I have a conversation like this on the podcast and they think, oh, man, I want to be like them. What advice do you have for somebody who wants to take the leap and start their own thing? First piece of advice, don't quit your day job. Never, never quit your day job. 
I met with someone here who was a listener of the show in Los Angeles, and they had lunch with me. And then a week later, they emailed me that they quit their day job to pursue their startup. And they hadn't raised any money. They didn't have a business model. They were still building the product out. And I couldn't believe it. It was one of these moments where I thought, why, why did you do this? You should keep your day job because the last thing you want to do when you take a leap like this is be desperate or feel like you have to make ends meet with your podcast or with consulting because that's when you start making, uh, you have lapses in judgment and you don't make the best decisions because you're dependent on this for your livelihood. And sometimes when you have solo projects, it takes time to grow them. It could take months. It could take years. Years, years. But you have to think about it that it's a longer term thing. And so if you quit your day job, you're putting extra expectation on these side projects and it actually could backfire on you because you end up leaving a stable job to get a job that you think is an ideal freelance gig. But if those run out, you may have to actually go back and get a day job. And that's the last thing you want to do. That's the advice I give people. Don't quit your day job and think about where you want to be in three to five years. Put down a roadmap for yourself. Like pretend you're a product. What's your product roadmap? How are you going to get there and keep making money? Because the last thing you want to do is give up a revenue stream to pursue some idealized vision or dream. Yeah, because it's hard. And that's the one thing a lot of people who are out there kind of marketing, you know, hey, start your own business programs, you know, pay me hundreds of dollars and I'll teach you how to do this program. The one thing that they leave out is how a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people hemorrhage cash for a long time when they start a business. And that was one of the things that, you know, I I understood, but I had to learn the hard way. And, you know, when I talk to people who want to become speakers, I tell them, you know, do you have the ability to last two years? without, you know, the level of income you're used to. I mean, you might have some income, but, you know, my recommendation is have one full year's salary in the bank before you make the leap because you only may be able to make half a year's salary that first year. That, that, that's what I did. Yeah, and, and if I, had a, you, I had a year's salary saved up so I could take the jump. Yeah, and if you have a year of salary and you make half as much, you essentially have a two-year runway. And, and I found I needed closer to three-year runway, but, but it really was you know two and a half years is when I started earning the type of money that I had earned in corporate America. Now, my problem was I got laid off and pushed out of the nest, so I didn't have a year saved up. I had about three months, maybe four months saved up. And that money disappeared within the first year, and the second year was all on credit cards. So it was uh, it was a little bit painful to get out of the debt that I took on. I wish I had had the money saved, you know, because the runway was long. Now the good news is is that you know I've, I've taken flight, but like everything else, you know, there can be dips. So I've got to have a reserve fund, you know, because I just don't know what every quarter or every six months is gonna gonna entail. But I do know after six years, I have a sustainable, you know, a sustainable business. Yeah, I, l- I left, and then I had money saved up, obviously I would not have jumped into this with a baby, <laughs> but, I didn't have some, but, but I didn't take my own advice, but I, I felt like, you know, I had enough that I had saved up and I made some, some stock moves because I'd been at startups. So I researched my book for the last year, interviewed people for the podcast that are going to be in the book. And I don't think I would have been able to pursue that if I had another startup job. And, and for me, I'm thinking longer view. So my book is the influencer economy, which is also the podcast, but it's so it's forty chapters. I'm planning on publishing it this fall, and I'm close to going to publishers and agents right now. But for me, I feel like books are very hard to monetize. So again, I'm picking more things difficult to make money from <laughs> podcast, <laughs> book. But I feel like books are a calling card now, and you, you know this as an author that if you can publish a book that 
is well-read or at least well-respected in, in that industry, it can help increase your rates for consulting. It can help get you speaking opportunities and increase that revenue stream and also get you in front of people that you think could be great clients in the long run because the book is an authority that it, you know, you're placing yourself that you are an expert on this topic because you actually took the time to think out and write about this. Absolutely. So, Ryan, we call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. So what's the coolest thing? And maybe it's writing your book. What's the coolest thing and the most exciting thing that you're doing in your business right now? The most exciting thing is that I'm interviewing people for the book and I'm creating a podcast ahead of the book. So the book will have content that will be audio-based that you can go back to on the website to hear in-depth interviews about the people I'm, I'm talking to. So some, I talked to this guy, Freddie Wong, on the podcast. He's raised over $2 million on three crowdfunding projects. I listened, a, I listened to, that, to that episode. It was actually two episodes. I listened to it. Yeah, he was, he's fantastic. He's a great interview, Freddie Wong. and So he's, he's a very successful creator, entrepreneur, has 7 million YouTube subscribers. and So he's actually the first chapter in the book. So you, you read the chapter, and then there'll be a link on the ebook, And the call to action will be go to the website and hear the entire interviews or the entirety of the interview, because in the end, I think that from what I've seen, there haven't been a lot of books that are related to the podcast and having that play off each other. And for me, that's exciting. I think that there's a new opportunity here and there's a publishing model that I hopefully will build out for other people to follow and potentially work with, where people could create a give and take with publishing a a podcast that becomes a book or vice versa, but continuing the book experience needs to be branded in multiple communities and not just be reliant on the book itself. Hey, maybe cool things entrepreneurs do should become a book. I've never thought of that before. That's what I'm hoping to do. And I'm actually in the process of putting together an agency. And I haven't really told many people about this, but the agency would be to help uh, people that are podcasters publish more materials beyond the the podcast themselves and, and publish more products that they can help monetize from their audience. Sure. Well, I'll have to introduce you to New Year Publishing, the company that I own part of that I'm involved with. And uh, maybe there's some synergy there. Totally. 100%. So I think the best entrepreneurs, in addition to doing really cool things, I think they're also observers. And we could talk to you all day about Ryan Williams and the influencer economy or uh, yeah, the influencer economy and everything that you're doing with your podcast and your new book and your consulting, you know, but I think after a while it would just be like, you know, okay, great. Thanks for having Ryan on the show. So I always like to go a step further and ask my guests, who do you see out there? Not yourself, not your own clients, not just, you know, like that. Who do you see out there beyond you who's doing something really cool? Who's doing something really cool right now? Uh, there's a lot of people out there. I think, uh, just off the top of my head, there's, a uh, Someone I just interviewed named Sarah Weichel, and she's a YouTube business manager, and so she works with talented YouTubers to grow their uh, brands off of YouTube. And so she has a client who has a web series on YouTube called uh, My Drunk Kitchen. It's a 20-something girl named Hannah Hart. But I was really impressed because they were the first YouTube creator to get a national book deal. Uh, for My Drunk Kitchen, a book that came off the YouTube channel. And on top of it, they became the first YouTube creator to have a New York Times best-selling book. And I think it's always amazing when people say, oh, there's, like when I worked at YouTube, with YouTube at Machinima five, six years ago, people kept saying, oh, you're not going to monetize YouTube. 
it's just a fad. These people aren't going to be building big businesses. And to see someone, you know, six years later now who started off making videos for free, for fun, and then they went viral at that moment. You could actually go viral. Now you can't as as well, you know, viral doesn't even exist anymore in my opinion. But you can't set yourself up to succeed without laying the groundwork and building a great community. So Ryan, you know what's cool about this is that you're a lot younger than I am. And you actually said this with a straight face. I think my my uh, my age group of, of 40 plus you know, type people might have gone, huh? In the fact that you talked about the person who was a guest on your show and you said, and she's a YouTube business manager. As if that's something that when we were in college in the 80s, my age group, we were like looking at, oh, we could become a lawyer, uh, we could become a doctor or an accountant or a YouTube sensation business manager. So that's what I love is that there's all these things out there where you can create a career where it didn't even exist a few years ago. As I look at my daughter getting ready to leave for college, and then I have another daughter who's still in junior high, when the two of them get out into their careers, they'll be working in jobs that don't even exist today. I love that. Yeah, I think in the end for me, what I'm going to do and be the most successful at, it doesn't exist yet. So, Well, I love the idea. What was it, a YouTube talent manager or business Yeah, manager? well, she's a YouTube talent manager, but she's really a business manager. Right. It just, it just, made, so, it so just struck story. me. It just struck me as, what is that? Well, it's, it's a great thing because she's adding all this. She's essentially adding value to these people that are artists making content. And they're, they're out of control. And she has metrics, which is the, the interesting part is she can go to movie studios or book publishers and say, actually, we get 100,000 views a video. We get 5,000 likes per video and you know 1,000 comments every video. Like, <laughs> you can't argue against that from a data perspective. And so she's arming her talent with the insights to actually monetize with, with the ROI attached to it versus, you know, some imaginary fictitious number that we've been using for the last 30 years in all these traditional industries. That's fantastic. That is, that is, that is fantastic that she's doing that. I'd like to know more about her. Hey, you bring up YouTube and you bring up going viral and how it's a different world. Do you remember what the first video that really went viral on YouTube ever was? Uh, I remember it. So the, evolu- the evolution of dance. Evolution of dance was a big one. So I think it was the first one to ever get a million hits. And I, I think, from what I remember, it was Lazy Sunday. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not familiar with that, but Jud- Judson... Remember the Saturday Night Live rapping video that was... The reason why it didn't last is because we were talking about this on Monday, is that SNL and NBC pulled it off of YouTube. Right. Because it was pirated content. Right. Well, and so just Judson Lapley was the evolution of dance. And what's fascinating oh, yeah. about it is he's actually a professional speaker and a very good friend of mine. And what's fascinating about it is now, you know, uh, Jimmy Fallon constantly does the evolution of, you know, whatever type of dance. They, Rap, they, they yeah. yeah, they do they, they do all these skits all the time. And, you know, they set it up with like the little light behind it and stuff like that. It's, it looks exactly like Judson's video. But he never intended for that to go viral. He was just sharing it with a friend who lived on the other side of the country. And the video was, you know, not something he had filmed the day before. It was something that he had. And a friend wanted to see it. And he said, oh, there's this thing called YouTube. I'll just load it up there and you can see it. And all of a sudden it came on and went, and went crazy. And so Judson's a really interesting story. Because you, I don't know that you could go viral the way Judson did with Evolution of Dance it, ever again. No, it's beautiful. He he was awesome, and he then he did more of a series of different dance moves. Oh but, yeah, uh, I mean the 
that video, yeah, definitely is epic. I think it's still in the top 50. Oh, it's it's still up there. And it, it was funny. We had dinner with him when he was in Austin. And so I made, you know, my kids had seen it and my wife had seen it. But I'm like, you know, we had to pull it up to make sure that they had seen it recently before we went and had dinner with him. And, uh, you know, it's what's great about him is he's just a down-to-earth guy. I mean, he was one of the first internet sensations with, with YouTube. And it's just a chapter in his life. It, you know, it's it's part of who he is, but you know, it's just a it's just a piece of it. It never went oh, to his head. Oh, really? It's a foot, more of a footnote. That, well, he gets business out of it, and he still yeah. does entertainment entertainment and stuff around it. But he's actually a you know a professional speaker who has real content for you know college age and and corporate audiences. And so he's out there doing a lot of really cool stuff that has nothing to do with the evolution of dance. Well, there's so Hannah Hart, who I just mentioned, she was making a video in her kitchen, uh, and she was drinking, doing some crazy recipe, and put it on YouTube, sent it to a friend, and then it went viral. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, and, and that era is not, it's not the same anymore because there's so much content out there. But, but yeah, these people caught lightning in the bottle and yep. more power to them. <laughs> hey, another thing about entrepreneurs is I think, you know, entrepreneurs also are givers because they want to make a mark. You know, yeah, there's some out there who are selfish, but most of the ones I run into really want to give back to society. So what is it that you do to impact the greater good? So I used to do community service and I'm not going to tell you over here in Los Angeles that I'm serving my community as much as I used to. But I think from my perspective is I love helping people launch ideas and getting their products out to the world. It's a passion of mine and I'm good at marketing and I want to help people. So oftentimes when people email me that listen to the podcast, I, I help them. So I answer questions. I even give free consultations sometimes to people that are really inquisitive or people that have invested in the show that just showed me that they you know, liked one episode or liked 20 episodes, I will say, hey, let's jump on the, the phone and do a 15-minute consultation and I'll help you market your idea. And so I try to help people that are you know, really out there trying to figure out what, what's roadblocking them. Because I think we're all in some ways you know, blocked entrepreneurs and we're, we're blocked artists, people that can't get our ideas out for whatever reason, we just can't start. And so oftentimes I help people and the intrinsic reward in, in, in me isn't financial. It's the, 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 the pride I feel that I share with that person that six months later I see them like they say that, that what they got was, you know, their idea off the ground. And I think, you know, when in our business, to your point about being a giver, you have to pay it forward and everyone helped us get to where we are because you need that right introduction. You need the right connection or the right break. And a lot of it's luck. And I think if you can help someone else create more luck for themselves and, and give it back, then that's, there's nothing better than that, than seeing like what you've worked on translate to another person and then you know, seeing how happy they are that they got what they needed to out of the project that they were working on. And Ryan, I admire that because so many people get so caught up in their own startup and trying to sell their own stuff and do their own thing. And I talk to people all the time and they're like, oh, I'm too busy to give advice or to help or to, you know, just, just be that sounding board that lets people kind of get guided towards, you know, dodging a bullet or whatever. And, and they're like, oh, I'm too busy doing my stuff. And my answer is, I think we should all be reminded we're, we're never too busy to do that because not only do you feel good from doing it, but if you help somebody you know, launch, 
you know, in the end, a lot of people are going to turn around and find a way to help you back. And so the people who are always like, oh, I'm too busy to help anyone else, they're also the people who say, well, no one out there ever helps me. Well, you know, I think it's a little bit of pay it forward. I think if you're the person who's out there, you know, being a resource whenever you can, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time to take a phone call or, you know, to go have a cup of coffee. If you can be a resource, I really think that you're onto something because I think when you do that, more people are going to go out of their way to help Ryan. 100%. And you, you can't look at it like that you put it into that one person and you expect something back from that one person. No, if you keep score, if you keep you score, can't. you're always going to feel like you lost. Uh, those are, I call those people ankle biters because <laughs> they remind you, oh, hey, I helped you. you know, what's in it for me now? And that's, that makes you cringe inside <laughs> because you didn't help the person or get help from them to like, do quid pro quo. But then in the end, helping people is great. And I think another like, understated element, and I'd be interested in your opinion about this, is so many of us are guarded with our, with our ideas, and they, we don't think we can share them with others because someone will steal it or do it differently or better. But in the end, you can't, people can't help you if they don't know what you're working on, and you, you can't work in a silo anymore. No, I think you're right. And I think that if, if, if you hide everything under a bushel, the world never sees it. And if you're always worried that someone's going to rip you off, and there are people who rip you off. I mean, I see it in, in my business. You know, people take an idea and, and they, you know, claim it as, as their own, or they take one of your stories when you're a speaker and start telling it. And it's like, dude, you know, that like happened in my life. You can't just go pretend it happened in your life, but they do it. And it's like, okay, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, no one can tell my story like I can tell my story. And I think the same thing is true with whatever you're doing. No one can give advice the way you can give advice. So, you know, if someone else wants to, you know, take something and and try to run with it, great, let them, you know, maybe they can do it better. But in most cases, it's not authentic. So I I think if you're too guarded, you miss the opportunity of of collaboration. Yeah, and the ship will sail without you because you're going to be stuck and someone else will actually do what you're doing that you never even met, but because they executed and and you – you can't get by, and this is what one of the themes of South by Southwest this year is, I found that more people were givers there than ever, and that people were asking for help. And it wasn't saying, hey, I want to pitch you my business to make a bunch of money. It was people saying, hey, this is my problem, or this is what I'm up to, or this is my success. Can you help me? And that's a philosophy that you know I think is undervalued because so much of what we do is competitive and driven by people trying to make a lot of money, but in the end... There's a lot of money out there, and if I'm going to do something different or similar to you, no matter what, like your point about the you know people joining speaker groups and people joining their trade associations, I imagine some of the best leads you've gotten have been from that group. Oh, I, mean, I, I wouldn't be in business if I hadn't joined the National Speakers Association. Now, that doesn't mean the association sends me any business, but the people who I have met not only send me business, but they, you know, last night there was a guy who is one of the top college speakers in the country, and he was, and he speaks in colleges and at military bases, and he was speaking in San Antonio yesterday afternoon and Fort Worth today, so that's a five-hour, four-and-a-half-hour drive, and Austin is in the middle, a little closer to San Antonio, but he was leaving at like seven o'clock, and he had to have dinner. And he called me and said, I know it's last minute. You know, I know you have a family, but you want to meet for dinner at eight o'clock. And, and I did. I actually had dinner with my family and then I went and had a second dinner. But, uh, 
you know, we went and we met and, and we shared ideas just about like, how do you really get your mindset? Like he participated in a program that really helped him see the world differently. And we had this long conversation and now I'm kind of inspired because I went for an hour and had dinner with a guy right off the freeway. So it didn't take any time out of his day. But if I hadn't joined NSA, I wouldn't know Mike. And if I didn't know Mike, I wouldn't have the inspiration I have today that's going to make my career better tomorrow. hundred uh, percent. You got it. Like it's the whole zero sum game case. You know, there doesn't have to be everyone, you're either a winner or a loser. You know, there's a great TED Talk that I always refer to people about zero-sum game. I can't remember the guy's name, um, but he, if you look it up on TED, it's, it's a great talk just about how so many of us in business think that we have to win or lose, but everyone can win in a different way if you just think about how you collaborate with someone else. So this has been great having you on the show, Ryan. I think that you're doing some really interesting stuff, and I'm really excited to see you know what happens with your book and with your consulting firm. If someone's listening and they want to know more about Ryan Williams, obviously you know that's kind of a common name. If you Google Ryan Williams, you're going to find uh, a lot of different people. So how are people to find you? Uh, they can find me on the web at influencereconomy.com to check out. That's where the podcast is hosted and of a lot of different articles I've written up there. They can also find me on Twitter at Ryan J. Will and on iTunes if they search for Influencer Economy. And if anyone on your show has a question, they can even email me. I believe, and I'd be interested in what you think about this, but I believe that in order to be successful in this day and age, you have to be accessible. And if you're not accessible, then unless you're Bill Gates, then you, there's no room for growth. Yeah, so, I, I think with real fame, there comes a problem because just the sheer numbers are out there. Right. I, I talk to people who are, you know, successful, but no more successful than I am, who right. always are like, oh, I have to protect all my time because all these people want to go have coffee. I'm like, who the how what what is wrong with me that I'm only having, you know, a handful of people a week ever want to have a call or coffee. It's not more than I can handle. And they go, oh, well, still, that's three times a week. And I'm like, well, you got to have your coffee anyway. And, you know, got to take a break somewhere. And they're like, no, 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 I, I say no to everybody who I can't figure out what's in it for me. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, you're just you know, no leads you away from opportunity. So I agree with you that being accessible brings opportunity. I've had people email me who've heard the podcast and ask questions and, you know, all of a sudden I'm on their podcast or we're having, you know, coffee when they come through Austin and we have a great friendship. So, you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to be best friends with everyone who sends me a tweet, but I want to be accessible because I don't want to limit the opportunity that maybe there's some serendipity and some some opportunity there. So if people want to email me, ryan at influencereconomy.com to that point. I feel like and in this era, there's no reason to have your guard up. And if you don't put yourself out there, you're not going to succeed because to your point about unless you're, you know, Angelina Jolie <laughs> or Brad Pitt, you know, you, it's business and it's relationships and it's actually, you know, cultivating community. No, I, I agree with you. And I actually said this on a panel one time and somebody came up to me and said, well, wait a second. What if you get famous, Tom? You're doing some stuff. What if you tip over the side and all of a sudden you are famous and your phone starts ringing a hundred times a day? And I said, well, if I get famous, I'm, I'm in a whole different business because if you're famous, your world, it's not the same as being a guy with a podcast. If you're famous, it's a different, it's a whole different business. And so what a, what a great problem to have. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I would have to retool everything about my life if I became famous, but my business plan doesn't call for me to become famous. My business plan calls for me to get out there and fight the good fight and try to provide value and make good connections and, you know, hope that uh, it all balances out in the end. And, you know, I'm, so far it's working. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not scared of it. I'm not seeking fame. And if it happened, I guess I'd have to create a whole new business plan. But that's the beauty of what we're, the world that we're in right now is you needed fame in some respects to be successful in different industries. But over the last three, 
four or five years with crowdfunding, podcasting, social media, you just need to be well known in your in your category. Nope, you're absolutely right. Well, Ryan, you again, need, you, you you need to know that. Tom, this is a great show, so thanks for having me. Well, and again, thank you so much for being on the show. And for those of you who listened, thanks for listening all the way through. Hey, uh, go ahead and go over to the Facebook page, which is just Facebook slash Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Uh, Also, you can follow us on Twitter, at Cool Podcast. You can follow me directly on Twitter, at Tom Singer, T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R. And uh, send me a note. Let me know what you think. And if you've listened to the show all the way to this point, Go over to iTunes and leave a review. You know, for a for an up-and-coming show, reviews still matter. It certainly mattered when I was brand new and right out of the gate. But even today, getting a new review, and, and when I was new, I was getting a lot of them. But even now, you know, two, three a week, I get so excited when I see there's a new review on, on iTunes. So go ahead and leave a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, hopefully, that'll be a, a positive review. But, you know, if you hate the show... You know, let us know, but uh, I can't believe you're still here 40 minutes later if you don't like the show. So anyway, uh, you know, hopefully you'll be back. The next show is going to be just me. It'll be only the second time I've ever done a show where I didn't interview people, but it's going to be just me talking about my six years as a solopreneur and what I've learned along the way and going into a little more depth about those 20 tips for solopreneurs. So I look forward to that next show. It's kind of a milestone and uh, we'll hopefully have you as a listener then. In the meantime, go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at TomSinger. This podcast was produced in part by Podfly.net. Podfly, passion for great-sounding podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.